everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Jody Archer. Hello, Jody, and thanks for joining me today. Hi, thank you for having me. So for those of you who are just joining us, Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. every Saturday and Sunday on 101.9 FM KVSH. It's also available online 24-7 at voiceofvashon.org. Thank you for joining us, and now we're going to dive into the show. So, Jody, if you could go ahead and ground our listeners a little bit, a little bit of your background, you know, give us a sense of who you are. Um, sure. Well, I came, you know, came to this book, and um, it's a kind of a culmination of my career with books in different areas, really. Um, after I grew up in England, you can probably hear from the accent, and uh, I went from my uh, first degree, which was in uh, contemporary literature, into the publishing house, um, and I spent a few years with Penguin UK. And they did this scheme back then where they ground a couple of people in the entire industry by moving them through sales, marketing, editorial and so on and I think that fed some of the consciousness that created this book. I worked in publishing and went moved to California which is what brought me to the US. I ended up getting a green card and staying and that's when I did a PhD in contemporary fiction and met Matt Jockers who is the co-author of this book. Right exactly and so what we're talking about folks is I don't even really know exactly how to describe this book. For some people it's going to become like their bible. I think. And for other people, it's just going to be full of aha moments. So we're talking about the bestseller code, anatomy of the blockbuster novel. And you can imagine there are tens of thousands of writers, if not more, throughout history who would have done anything to get their hands on something like this. I was reading on your website various comments from all sorts of people who have read and recommended the book. Give us a sense of how... You guys even came up with the idea. I think that, yeah, that's a good question. And my experience was that it was fresh only because, you know, there's an old uh, adage in all the publishing world that best-selling is a real crapshoot. And it, it's hard to know more than looking kind of in a crystal ball um, which books, especially with new authors, are, are going to um, really sell um, and take off globally mm-hmm. like Steve Larson did, you know, with his came from nowhere from Sweden and took over the world with his Dragon Tattoo series. Right. And, and to go now flop, even if the editor who read them at submission really loved the voice and the story and so on. So um, I, I went to Stanford um, with that idea in my mind about publishing, but also kind of my gut was telling me, you know what, that there's got to be something in common with these stories despite genres. Um, and I'm, I wanted to investigate that. Luckily, because of the advance in digital humanities and the ability to look at books with this text mining approach, the computer can read patterns that human eye just can't. And so we investigated my idea in a way that I don't think would have been possible some years ago because we didn't have the tech in place. Right, right. One more example of how advancements in technology, specifically computer power, is changing how humans are able to engage in the world. It is a pretty amazing piece of our current evolution. Yeah. You know, I, I personally came from a very traditional literary background. You know, I have you know, a PhD and my BAs. I made all English, all literature. Um, I hadn't done any coding, not even one attempt um, before I met Matt. And I've been in the publishing house and I'm very, very writer-friendly and write myself. So so I came in with some suspicion of tech, you know, what technology doing in the field of studying books and literature. And I think that's probably been all for the better because, the con- you know, my story of being convinced, which is part of um, the book, has meant that I think I um, have won some friends in a reading and writing community um, rather than just coming out of a computer science background. So I remember when Fractals came out, and it was all based upon computer advancements and taking math and the computers were able to bust out you know millions or billions of equations and produce the fractal imagery uh yeah everything you're saying is correct we still have to engage with the computer and interpret the data and it's definitely you know computer human interaction and that's been the really fun side of it but mm-hmm. we were looking at 280,000 data points in every novel um and found that 2800 were really relevant into as to hitting the list which is the new york times bestseller list versus not hitting the list and so for mm-hmm. any to try and keep track of 28,000 um data points across 
spent 30 years of publishing is just, you know, impossible. Right, so right, I, literally. I, yeah, yeah. So I'm hoping that we really are putting on the table a perspective, um, an insight that speaks not only to what technology is enabling um, when we think about literature, but um, brings new ideas to writers and people who love to read about right. why they're reading. Yes. Well, I know. So what's interesting about this, and then I'm going to dive into a really funny story that came um, up in my writer's group. One of the things that came to my mind, especially as a person who is currently working on a novel, and so I sort of know what it feels like to be in that position where you're trying to figure out how to make things work, yeah. is how would it be possible for a writer to read this and not actually walk away with the sense of, oh my goodness, now there are these things that I have to do and things I can't do and actually like have their anxiety fly through the roof. And I'm assuming in general in the book, you're going to be like, yeah, well, you know, here's how you take the information and don't freak out and try to like treat it like a, a recipe. You know, you, you still want the art and you you know, so, so tell us a little about that. How does a person not become more neurotic? <laughs> um, yes, that's funny. That's uh, such a writerly question I write to and uh, neurosis is part of maybe some of our consciousness, but it, the truth is most writers genuinely have written to me and there've been a lot um, saying, oh my gosh, you've just bring, brought my hope back. I was stuck or you now you've blown my mind. So, so far it seems to have helped. And I think that's because there's, there's no way that you could reverse engineer a bestseller in a kind of very premeditated way out of what we say in the book. And because, you know, we're discussing 28,000 data points or, or picking some of the most noteworthy or um, kind of thought-provoking um, points of, of that mass amount of data. There's, there's just no way that you could consciously sit and try and make your story do all of it. Um, but the broad strokes, I think you can do. And it's just the case that the whole of the current bestseller list sits on this data uh, more or less, and so look how different those books are that are currently on the list. It's not we're not giving a formula like this genre at this moment, boy meets girl, etc. It's it's much more subtle and nuanced than that. So right. your novel or a romance novel or a, a western novel, you know, these things might all pick bits up and still have their own very unique voice that's uh, unique to that author. Right, right, right. right. Um, I just I, so here's the story, right? For everyone listening around the world, this will not be directly relevant because you don't live on this island, but if you live on Vashon and you're interested in being part of a writer's group, there's actually a writer's group that meets on Sunday evenings here on the island. It was funny because I had gotten this book in the mail. I was looking forward to our interview, and I show up at my writer's group, and I walk in, and the book is sitting there on the table. So I'm sitting there looking at it and thinking, wait, I brought that book in here? I don't remember bringing that book in here. And then in walks um, Melissa, and she had ordered your book. She'd heard about it in advance, ordered the book, got it like the night it released, stayed up like all night, did an entire read through. And then she wrote up two or three page summary for all of her writer friends who might be too busy to sit down and read the whole book because they just had to know the amazing stuff that was in here. And she shows up, you know, this is like, we're looking 48 hours later. I think she maybe caught up on some sleep a little bit. And she's like, woo. So, and then I'm like, oh, well, I'm, I'm actually going to be interviewing Jody in a week. And she was like, oh my gosh. So I have a list of some interesting questions that she and some of the other people from the writers group have about the book. And they were hoping that I could ask you some of the questions today. Oh, of course. Yeah. Excellent. In her question, she said that she was interested to know how you would set up the algorithms. Basically, how does a computer recognize, for example, rising action and falling action. So she's curious about how they go after that when that's not necessarily a pinpoint of information or a specific data piece. So that's her question. Um, yeah, good one. Um, we talk about this really a lot in, in the third chapter, which is about, um, we call it great curves. What we discuss there is how uh, the computer can graph and draw um, a plot line of a book on a kind of, you know, X and Y axis. And, uh, you know, as you go uphill, it's fairly intuitive, go uphill and you, you're going into kind of rising action tends to be in positive emotional space. And then something bad happens and you drop off the cliff and you see this swoop down into uh, more negative territory. And um, this is a proxy for... Um, plot that we use and it's 
been written about quite a little bit by other people that work in the digital humanities and it's created by um, looking at the emotional valence of different single words so mm -hmm. and to kind of say something as simply as I can um, the proximity of those words to other words so if you imagine the word like ecstatic would be a, a flag for a very positive situation, especially if it's surrounded by many other words that would harmonize with it in you know, paragraphs that saying, oh, there's something really good going on in this character's world right now. Mm -hmm. And then other words, body, dead, knife, screams, um, and that are going to have a very different emotional valence and the computer is trained to recognize um, the frequency of these kinds of um, pinpoint words and how often they appear together and from that it creates this graph of the um, ups and downs of a story or the rising um, you know the, as you you know as you put it the, the kind of fall um, and rise of the, the characters Okay, so what's interesting here is this thought just came to mind for me is that um, so Tess's husband, Matt, who's in the writer's group, he tends to focus on sci-fi. And what you have said earlier that you cannot necessarily take the information in this book and work backwards to construct a novel based upon it. But as you mentioned, you know, what you just said and, and how the computer is able to look for certain things. Could you imagine at some point a computer actually taking this type of information and from it crafting a book that perhaps a human who read it would not realize it was written by a computer, not a person? Certainly there are people out there who are trying to achieve that. Um, and we I don't know if you've read through the epilogue that that's, that's where we address this question. You know, we have a whole book about computers reading books, what about writing them? And we give some examples of, some of the work that's going on out there and the kind of literature it's producing. And Matt and I so far are underwhelmed. Um, <laughs> and we, we have been sent by various uh, companies and places since this book was published um, examples of text, like which one was uh, written by a person and which one was written by a computer. And we've been able to tell 100% of the time just from, I don't mean with any help from a computer, just by reading it. Um, right. And I think the only way they're ever going to get any good is um, if the people programming the words in or giving phrases that are kind of pulled out are really good writers themselves. So it would have to be a, um, a kind of mashup between a, a whiz, whiz kids, computer scientists and some really great authors. And, and then you might get something. But mm -hmm. uh, I think that first the human attempt is what we're interested in, you know, hearing about. And some people are telling us that they are rewriting opening sections because they understand what we write about with, um, we call them, you know, the rhythms, the beats of fiction, and that mm -hmm. their opening pages are off and they see it, so they go back and edit. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that sense, we are helping people engineer in the sense of craft, form. And definitely another thing we're hearing from writers is that they have taken to heart what we reveal about theme and, how many uh, novice writers just put way, way too many themes into a book and without any kind of focus or proportion on just one or two. And that mm -hmm. it happens all over the best-selling list. So we have writers going, oh, I'm just going to simplify, simplify, simplify. Yeah, um, no, I think that's a great, that's a brilliant point. I, I agree. When you look at books, that have hit the bestseller list um, and you're looking for similarities between them, which I've actually been doing for about five years myself. I have this thing where I just walk into any bookstore I see and I'll go just go start looking at all the bestsellers and checking just what's going on because there'll be, there'll be a dystopian theme that'll happen for a while. And then there'll be a little bit more of a fantastical theme. And, you know, there's the vampire era, you know, and, and, and so there's all this stuff that happens and it's it's true when you look at i think it's true that when you look at all of these books that are really successful even going back through history there really does oftentimes seem to be in the midst of this massive complicated story with all these characters and all this stuff going on one massive central theme and lesson that is just being built upon in all these ways and coming through yeah, you're right. We found that the sweet spot is to give 30% um, of your book, so 30% of your actual pages, if you were to kind of measure, 
just two to three themes, uh, no more than that. And then an author may have trace amounts of many, many themes, you know, just a discussion or a walk in their park where two characters meet and discuss something might flag, oh, there's some nature in this book, but it's going to give us like half a percent of a presence. And so a theme like being at school or children's school, I'm thinking of Jodie Pico now, her, her book was on my desk recently about school shootings and those kind of themes. Right, She's right. Example of taking a few themes, so she has children and school and, and parenting, and then her her other major one to go in the mix of, as, I, as I'm saying, two to three to take up 30% of the book is something that directly contrasts or threatens the first theme. So kids in school next to guns is already mm-hmm. scary. You've already got conflict, and you can start putting characters into that, and you can, if you're a kind of visual imagination, uh, imagination kind of person like I am, I already can start scenes come when I just say those two themes. So I often say to writers who ask me, me for help, well, what's your book about? Give me the two major themes. And is there any conflict between those themes? Uh, Danielle Steele, who has every book that she's ever written, I think, hit the New York Times bestseller list. She's really good at that. She'll take um, a family uh, and then a hospital. And so you just look, you just need those two words and you see what threatens, you know, the stable, happy um, family, what some, one of the areas we dread as, as a family is someone being sent or rushed to the hospital. Mm-hmm. So it, it's so simple when you think about it, but it's, it's a nice kind of writing group thing to do is let's think of a theme and then another one that totally um, contrasts with it or creates fear or conflict instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to sort of tell people to think about that exercise when they're thinking through their own book, especially if it's complex. And hospital isn't really a theme, but hospital is like the territory that's scary to the family. So it'd be like, um, yeah. yeah, you take like like one and then you say, where would that entity or group not want to end up? Well, yeah, we actually do read it as a theme. Or actually, I prefer the word topic. And we we talk in the book about, you know, what's the difference between a theme and a topic. And mm-hmm. we take uh, 500 themes under analysis in the book Uh and look at which ones are more prevalent and best-selling and which aren't. And so the, the area, the situation of the hospital, while it sounds like a setting, um, it comes along with words like, you know, illness, accident, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, an occurrence that creates the setting. Uh, and right, right, it's right. It's a illness environment when, you know, where, where people are threatened and the level of health is kind of the theme that you would uh, take from it. Um, yeah. And then again even more abstract themes, death, pain, and so on. Right, right, right. So real quickly, um, for those of you who are just joining us, I'm March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, and I am interviewing Jody Archer, co-author of The Bestseller Code, Anatomy of the Blockbuster Novel. Support for this program is provided by Leif Rasmussen of Vashon Dental, who operates a family practice providing dental care in a relaxed environment and committed to providing personalized care and treatment for every individual's unique needs. Located across from the Vashon Center for the Arts at 19715 Vashon Highway Southwest. Okie doke, I really appreciate the people who make Voice of Vashon possible. This is a brilliant station, and thank you to everyone who keeps it going. Okie doke, so we're going to go a little bit sideways here. I want to pull one more of the questions here, but first I just was going to throw out there that with November coming up and uh, National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo, seems like your book would be really brilliant for the person to get in Christmas time, you know, in December or whatever, because if you get through NaNoWriMo and you're just blowing your story down onto the screen and there it is, then it seems like a lot of these insights are really useful for going back and and reviewing compared to a person who hasn't um, written anything down yet and they go, oh, I'm going to go sort of figure out all the tricks of the trade and then I'll, I'll write it per recipe. So would you definitely suggest that it, it be part of a review tool? Yes and no. I think there are certain chapters that really would help people right at the beginning. I think chapter three on, on plotting um, and understanding um, shape. Uh, is a real kind of macro look and we give seven images of seven plot shapes that we found that uh, all the stories, all of the books that we had in our entire corpus fit into one of those seven plot shapes, whether they were a bestseller or not. And 
people said oh, you can't yeah having a snapshot of this macro image of a of a novel just as a as a line like a spatial picture of it rather than a temporal experience of a narrative has really really helped them um get going so right maybe, right maybe before you start would be would be helpful I, I don't know okay so that now i gotta say i really love your chapter titles i'm going to read a couple of them here so number three the one that you were just talking about jody is the sensations or how to form some perfect curves which is a brilliant pun <laughs> mm-hmm. and then um so okay chapter two totally this is hilarious the godparents or why you must take time to date. Okay, so how did you guys come up with that that title to that chapter? That's that's hilarious. Um, well, that chapter is about uh, topic and theme, and it teaches how a computer uh, approaches the very complex topic of creating a theme uh, within a work of fiction. And the book is not very technical. Um, you've read it, I don't know if you agree, but it's certainly not written for a computing or scholarly audience. It's written for, you know, anyone who, like me, has never even thought about writing a piece of code or and doesn't have that jargon that goes with that world. Oh, yeah, so, no, but, totally. This is a totally accessible book. Yeah, so we give um, a few indicators of how, how you create those themes and then how we read the theme when we're looking with a computer. And then we go and discuss, okay, which of these themes um, are showing up all over the list, which ones aren't. And then we ask, okay, which authors out there of all the authors are the best examples we can give our readers if they want to go and read some work of people who are getting theme right, which which are the best? And that's really not just about which themes you're picking, but the proportion of themes. So um, not just knowing family is a good theme, but how much of it and how much of a different theme is right. So it's a kind of uh, the right recipe. And we were stunned that the two writers that their algorithm picked for us, having you know, blind as to authors and their reputations, um, so from totally unknown authors, it it put John Grisham and Danielle Steele in front of us as the two writers in the whole, um, you know, the whole history of books on the list and and trying to hit the list. It just na- nailed it, and we were just thought, well, wow, uh, and look at their careers, John Grisham and Danielle Steele, and right. It just, when we talked about them, we went back and read some more of their work. And we, from there, we saw them as, you know, the godparents because they were um, they were all on the list a lot at the beginning of, of the, the period we covered with this study back in the 80s and 90s. I mean, still are, but very dominant then. And so we kind of discussed them as the godparents of what we are teaching and, and how um, other authors, literary authors, diverse authors, authors in different genres, are doing some of the same things, but that they just do it so well every time that they hit the list every time they write a book. So that was a god And then why you must take time to date comes from the top theme that the computer picked as being um, influential to hitting the list. It was the most prevalent um, in bestsellers and the most absent in non-bestsellers, and it's a theme we've labeled uh, human closeness. So humans getting close, and that's why taking time to date um, came in as an important thing for writers to remember. Mm-hmm. Whatever we need those, and it's actually not just kind of the traditional sense of romantic dating, but it's a kind of a date um, between you know the mother and son. You go out to have a date, meet for coffee, catch up, what's going on in school, or you know, date two girlfriends, let's go shopping together and talk about what's going on here, and and it's. Often in those scenes that we see characters processing what's going on, we see action slow down a little um, and people uh, forming bonds, right. not necessarily romantic. Um, right. Those scenes are really important to um, kind of good writing um, and in, in good in terms of hitting the list. And novice writers tend to forget them. So must take time to date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so this is really interesting. So this isn't, let me just double check, make sure I know exactly which chapter I'm in because I just realized it doesn't actually say at the top of the page what chapter you're in. Oh, there we go. Chapter three. Okay, it's the sensations. Um, so I two things I want to say real quick. I'm just saying back to back. And one, this is really fascinating, is that people sometimes believe, whether you're a reader or a writer, there's this idea 
one of two ideas. One is that success is based upon the gatekeepers and whether you're simply given the platform offered and that if you're given enough support, poof, you're going to be an automatic success. And I want to say that I think Stephen King does a good job of proving that to not be true because there was a period of time in his career where the quality of his work actually went down and he was having some pretty intense personal issues and it, it impacted, you know, it's like, it wasn't like he just continued to be that perfect bestseller forever, no matter how crappy the books got for that few, few years in there. And then he came back with, with, you know, more brilliancy and got back on track. So when you say that Grisham and Steele every time just, you know, hit it and land up there, I could hear in the back of my mind someone saying, well, yeah, but they're famous and they have a massive publishing, you know, support system. And that's why. Yeah, I think that, I mean, uh, my experience of being in, in publishing houses and, and watching them is that publishing seems to work a little bit on the idea of copycat publishing. Editors are looking um, backwards to see what ha may happen going forwards. And, and it's fair enough, given there's more and more pressure on traditional houses to make their acquisitions budgets work for them. For example, I was in, in publishing back when uh, Stieg Larsson um, published Go the Dragon Tattoo. And I know from anecdotal um, evidence at conferences and things like that, that acquisitions editors all over the country and all over other countries were thinking, okay, what's the formula here? How do we do it again? And the same is true with the Da Vinci Code. Um, mm -hmm. How do we, what's going on here? So Swedish male uh, thriller writers got commissioned like, overnight in every, every one that was available. And the truth is that uh, many, 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 if not most of those failed because that wasn't the, the formula and they had big marketing dollars behind them. And the copycat books of Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code got big marketing dollars, and many of them flopped. And on the conversely, um, there are many novels that come out of very little marketing. Um, William Young's The Shack, uh, obviously Fifty Shades of Grey, both self-published novels that had very little um, promotion that got them going. It was readers that brought them to the attention of publishing houses and they'd already sold many, many copies before the houses then added marketing right. dollars and sent them kind of into the stratosphere. So it's it's probably yeah, not fair to be an author and, and not look more deeply into your work and your DNA, as we call it, if you aren't achieving success. But then not every writer wants to be on the bestseller list or, or they or they would like to be because of the success, but they don't want to write like um, a best-selling writer. And, of course, many, many mm -hmm. writers achieve respectable sales without hitting the list every year. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. I find it fascinating, actually. Thank you for sharing that sort of insight on the, the looking backwards and the copycat idea. Because to me, what's interesting is I have this sense that human beings tend to oftentimes thrive on a new idea, be extra fascinated by a new idea. So it always seems to me that um, you would expect diminishing returns if you were attempting to um, repeat basically a theme. It almost seems like, you know, the Da Vinci Code, when that came out in my lifetime, meaning my experience of what I'd read before, um, it was the first novel of its sort that really took this deep, focus on all this religious history and plunked it into a mystery and, and all this stuff. And I remember being fascinated, but it doesn't mean that I had suddenly become a historical religious mystery novel reader. And if someone else came out with another book that was of a similar theme, I, in fact, even Angels and Demons, I don't even think I read that. And yeah. um, if someone came out with another theme, my tendency is to be like, well, I've been there. I did that. That was fun. That was great. I don't need to do a bunch more. Uh, so I'm, I'm not, I don't know. It actually seems to make a bit of sense that you wouldn't necessarily get that same crisp first, you know, explosion of interest. Well, that's, I mean, I think you, you're right in some, some ways. Certain themes, uh, we have readers out there who attest to reading the same book more or less again and again and again, especially in subgenres of romance. Well, yes, uh, yes. All the, all the Western romances. But I think that um, if you're trying to be a copycat writer of Dan Brown, then looking at that surface-level theme of, okay, it's about the 
you know, history of the Catholic Church and a controversial interpretation of it. That's to ignore the things that are going on with characterization and um, plotting and um, the kind of curve, creation of curves to reference back to our um, chapter title and how um, other things are used. So the mistake in trying to be a copycat writer is to say, okay, um, like vampires are in right now. I'm going to write any novel with vampires. Right. And then fail to achieve the kind of brilliant symmetrical plot line that um, is achieved by most of those writers that are hitting the list. So mm -hmm. it's kind of only uh, a little bit blindly thinking we're trying to copy and we're not thinking more deeply about well actually how did that book look formally and one of the things that really blew my mind when we were doing this research was um, Fifty Shades of Grey hit the list and many people came to us and said okay explain this book because in our first iteration of the of the model which was my PhD thesis you know I'd come to the conclusion that sex doesn't really sell it's not a topic that's high on the list and so, of course, people said, okay, well, now you look like a fool. And so I, I we looked at the book, and, and it's actually, um, even though there's sensation around the sex in that book, it actually doesn't take up that many of the pages, and it's about two people who are discussing their relationship a lot, you know, going out to dinner to discuss how we're going to interact, going, going to another scenario to discuss will there be a contract between them. And and in that sense, it, it does many of the things as the traditional um romance novel, Boy Meets Girl, and then they have to overcome a conflict. Um, but what we found was that really helped me explain that book was that there are two books in all of the books we studied over the past 30 years that have a, um, a kind of plot structure that has very regular emotional beats and very high and very low. And those two books were Fifty Shades of Grey and The Da Vinci Code. So while they are ostensibly very different, they're the only two books that we found this plot shape in. There's a picture of it in the book. And look at their sales. They're the two of the best-selling novels of all time. Well, that's interesting because that, I've been looking at page 110 here. And what's really fascinating for me is at the end of the um, chapters, it has what you call the lists. And that's um, like a list of a bunch of books that match up with whatever elements being discussed in that chapter. So I've been sitting here looking at page 110. So each chapter, I think it's really awesome because what's brilliant is a person can say, okay, well, I'm really curious about this. I'm going to go grab those three books. I'm going to analyze them myself and see how I can, if I can start to identify and feel how this macro shape works or whatever the topic is of the chapter. Well, right here, top 10 with a macro shape like Fifty Shades of Grey. And you were just mentioning the other book by Dan Brown, um, the Da Vinci Code, right? Yeah, but you've also got him listed here with Inferno. But this is what I find hilarious is number nine is Stephen King, Cujo. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't think most average readers are going to jump to the assumption that Cujo and Fifty Shades of Grey share anything in common at all. And so I think this is awesome you guys do this as it really, in a way, might motivate the people who are reading this book to really get the sense that when you're analyzing at this level, you're really diving into new territory, interesting areas, like surprises are going to come up, which reminds me of what it says at the beginning here on the um, inside cover. It says, then there is the hunt for the one, the paradigmatic example of best-selling writing according to a computer's analysis of thousands of points of data. The result is surprising, a bit ironic, and delightfully unorthodox. So, you want to tell us about the one? Uh, sure. Um, it, it's sometimes it's hard because it's such a spoiler. Um, for, oh, I, I you, if you don't want to, you don't have to. It's up to you. <laughs> I'm happy to. That's my that's my spoiler alert. I've been. I've had some readers go. No, I want to find out uh, who's at the end of the treasure hunt. So, I mean, the structure of the book is that we take each uh, each chapter chapter and talk about something different: theme, plotting, um, style, as a whole chapter. And, and yes, you're right. That at the end of the book, certain books get placed together in a list that you would not normally think of together because we think so much about genre and theme and topic okay. in a way that blinds to the other similarities in topically diverse books uh, and books that are stylistically diverse as well. So um, we do bring different books together, but what we're doing in each chapter is working towards, um, okay, which is the book um, of the past 30 years that really 
was a good example of how to use um, character and style uh, in, a, in a quintessential way for hitting the list. So the kind of, not necessarily the best example, but the, the sweet spot, the, the paradigmatic example among them all. And we just, um, actually it just happened by chance, the computer assigns a probability score of success to every book in the corpus that goes from one to 100. And there are many, many books that we discussed here that were 95, 96, 97%, 98% sure that they were going to hit the list, which is um, fairly confident. Um, but there was only one that the computer said, 400%, this book is doing all the right things to hit the list. And we talk about that in the last chapter. Uh, and the book itself it surprised Matt and I hugely. We had, you know, played this game of guessing as we were doing the research and building. The wait, 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 so let me guess. <laughs> okay. okay. It's, it's, a book um, that's, it's a book that's out there in the world already. Yes. And it's published. Yeah, a 100% chance. So, um, was, it, yeah. Yeah, it did hit the list, uh, the New York Times bestseller list here, yes. Okay, give me a hint. And I had been guessing putting, uh, as we were building the algorithm and improving it so we didn't have the final scores in, we had so many different guesses between us, so it was, it was pretty fun. And, uh, so and, what, and looking- what year <laughs> was the book published, the one that actually, that book, when was it published? Um, gosh, you're challenging me now. I think in hardback, maybe 2013. Oh, recent. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh never mind. I'm not going to guess. <laughs> All right, yeah, so. well, who you would, what might have guessed, you know, the so, and our editors were guessing, and our agent was guessing when we were, when we were writing. Um, and the reason we were surprised and uh, is that the author, and, you know, pleasantly surprised, too, the author is, is fairly uh, literary uh, and very um, kind of lettered. He's one of those writers who has managed to hit the list and hit the list. His first book was Memoir, um, and he hit the list. Um, immediately with his first book and then moved to other forms and has won lots of literary awards but also is a best-selling author and that's it's hard to hit both of those yeah Um, yeah exactly and uh, this novel is probably his it's still fairly literary it's a thinking novel but it uses them borrows the most from best-selling tropes in terms of style and pacing and that kind of thing, in, in my opinion. And, and the writer is uh, Dave Eggers, uh, who is a, a San Francisco-based um, author, and his novel is called The Circle. Um, oh, yeah. That's a good timing because it's about to be released as a movie this year with uh, Emma Watson. And I think Tom Hanks, I think, is playing the male uh, lead. Um, it will be coming out in the fall. So... Um, it's just good timing for people discussing that book, and the book is kind of set in a in a sort of dystopian environment um, that's maybe like a future company that's. Yeah, no, I read of, it. I read it a few yeah. years ago. Yeah, it was. I, yeah, I would go and pick out a whole bunch yeah. of bestsellers and just read them. Yeah, well, that's that's the one that the computer picked, and the irony, of course, is that the the dystopia is centered on uh, big data and uh, and, and a kind of Facebook, Google, Apple, Silicon Valley baby uh, of a company um, with everybody kind of not forgetting kind of ethics and privacy and all those kind of things and what would happen if if data and the sharing of data just starts kind of ruling the world. And so it's it's kind of scared of algorithms, um, the, the perspective or the consciousness of that novel. Uh, and so, of course, it was ironic when that's the very one that the computer picked. Right, you know, right. Algor- <laughs> about algorithms. Uh, well, so the interesting thing about it is that it's almost, um, it's almost uh, in as far as the, I'm assuming, does he have a second book in that series coming out? It felt um, like it I wasn't think, quite completed. Yeah. Um, He's just come out with another book this fall. I, I, as far as I know, it's not a continuation. Okay. I don't, I don't think so. 
because my memory of it, and it was a while, once again, I would just, I would just go check out lots and lots of bestsellers and just read through them, just trying to like absorb value. And um, what I found interesting is almost like the opposite of what happens in the Hunger Games, where with the Hunger Games, you have the primary character, Katniss, is evolving in her social awareness and her realization that things are wrong and need to be corrected. And the main character in the circle, my memory is that um, almost begins to get lured into and become susceptible to believing the, you know, the narrative of why it's okay for us to be controlling other people. And I don't, I don't think a whole bunch more happens, but that's like, that's my takeaway. Actually, that's my memory of that book was disappointment in the protagonist for slipping down, you know, the slippery slope. Yeah, I think that's it. And that's one of the strengths of the book that the you know character and strong characters drive action. And in that book, uh, the main character is called May, and she is, sort of is made um, to think of herself as the most important person in this company, and and really she's just a kind of pawn. Uh, and so this downfall happens because of a sense of her own agency uh, in the world and how her kind of naivete about that is being manipulated by the the, the powers that be around her. So, yes, yeah, she's very, um, becomes more and more blind because she becomes more and more power hungry. Right, right. Um, there may be some people who have joined the show. It's an hour long, so thank you for joining us. If so, you're listening to March Twisdale, uh, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. I've been talking with Jody Archer, who is one of the two authors of the bestseller code, Anatomy of the Blockbuster Novel Today on Voice of Ashon. And of course, Voice of Ashon exists because we get supported by all sorts of people who um, understand the value and importance of local radio, although with our website, of course, many of our shows are listened to out of the area. Support for this program comes from Vashon Heating and Cooling, a full-service heating, cooling, and energy management company. They will diagnose your home or office HVAC problem and offer on-site solutions for energy savings. You can reach them at 206-463-1777. I do want to get back to one more of the questions offered to me by my my fellow writers group members. But first, I want to get your take on this. I've heard some of the reviewers of your book talk about how it almost seems to be more of an exploration into um, not just American, but maybe mostly American. A lot of this sounds like American um, literature. An exploration into readers and culture in our time versus the actual inherent value of a piece. And what I mean is that it just seems that this really helps to illuminate what our modern target audience is drawn to or finds most appealing. What do you think about that? Um, I I think that's uh, absolutely right, and it it was intentionally so. I mean, we start the book... uh, from a different perspective than most literary critics um, who come to bring a value judgment. Exactly, you know, value is exactly the right word from whatever their perspective might be on a novel. You know, if they're from a very literary background and like Pulitzer Prize winners, then you'll see a value judgment. Um, for sure, there were thousands of them in the press when Fifty Shades of Grey and The Da Vinci Code and The Dragon Tattoo and pretty much any runaway bestseller um, made it. There were many, many literary critics uh, kind of damning those books with with any anything that they could to say that they didn't have literary value and Matt and I have a very different perspective and we want to give every writer their um kind of uh be generous to all writers and what they're trying to achieve and we decided we weren't going to value any book you know that that the job of that had been done for us by the American reading public and they put certain very different books on the list you know Jonathan Franzen hits the list and so does um so do uh, writers like Alice Diebold who are crossing genres and, and doing different things. So does Stephen King. Um, so does David Waldachi. So this the American public deciding on some level, okay, we like this book, and we just didn't interfere with that and try and say, well, you should or you shouldn't. We tried to then say, okay, you like these books together. Why? Uh, what does it say about the current moment? What does it say about why we like to sit in a, a comfy chair and read all evening or 
stay up all night and read a book? Um, what can we learn about ourselves as a reading culture from the choices that the mass numbers of people are making together? Right, 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 exactly. Uh, okay, so everyone, I just got to say this. First of all, it's a great book cover. Um, it's bright. It's almost got a pinky tone to the red, and I really like it because there's a lot of just plain red out there, and there's just something about this color that really stands out. The bestseller code, at the top it says, what a groundbreaking algorithm can teach us about books, stories, and reading. Um, And so there are just one last funny thing that came up, and I just want to check in on this with you, is um, apparently there's something about the word thing. Yeah, yeah. Um... It's thing in the style chapter. We talk about how whether we like it or not, all of us who write, and and that's not just people who are authors, but we write letters, we write emails um, in all walks of life. We all have a, a fingerprint that's probably totally subconscious to us, and we we think it likely is because there are writers who have tried to change their style and write under a pen name, J.K. Rowling and Stephen King being two classic examples, and um, uh, using style and metrics, which is the part of an algorithm like this that only looks at the style and not things like theme. The algorithm has said very clearly, okay, Cuckoo's Calling by Robert Gilbraith was actually written by J.K. Rowling and um, has confirmed that King, um, who writes under Backman as well, is, has still the same fingerprint of style. And that's to do with choices of words like the and because um commas, semicolons, and then words like thing, however, these nondescript words. And so there's a story about why this this kind of matters and why uh, a use of a comma that might be subconscious to J.K. Rowling um, outed her as, as the author of uh, Cuckoo's Calling. And this little word thing is one of those that um, appeared and was flagged to us by the machine as appearing many more times in bestsellers and non-bestsellers. And literary writers are kind of irritated by that because it's such a nondescript word and you, you can imagine a writing teacher saying, don't just say thing, think of a more specific um, word for whatever that thing is. Mm-hmm. But um, the word thing is much more um, common in bestsellers and so it was like, okay. And, like seven um, times more or something, wasn't but, it? Yeah, yeah and um, I forget now the exact number, but, but yes, sometimes more. And... To me, it's part of the greater uh, investigation of that book, which is reveals that many, many writers who hit the list come out of a journalistic background, and they have learned to write to millions of people uh, in the press, um, newspapers, magazines, online, and the, the register of language is just more informal than your kind of traditionally trained literary author um, whose background is Chaucer and Shakespeare and... Um, Bronte and and so on. And so we have a kind of more uh, colloquial, um, voice-driven style appearing more and more often on the list. And I think words like thing um, are just indicative of that, really. Um, Well, I could totally see that, too, because I can tell immediately, like in the first page of reading something, whether I'm going to have to slow down and pay attention because it's dense and detailed. And then there's something else you pick up and you think, oh, I could just fly through this so it almost makes yeah. sense to me actually it's, it's the difference between writing um if you want to write with language that draws attention to itself of course words are the a medium writers use and there are many successful brilliant lasting literary writers who call their readers attention to the ambiguity of language and the beauty of certain words or the surprising new juxtaposition of words um and then there are others who like their language to be almost transparent and it becomes something oral and you just hear a voice um, and you get this kind of narrative uh, tone uh, to the voice and that voice tells you a story and you aren't really that concerned with the language you're meant to see through it into the into the scene, the action. Right. Um, I love to read books that achieve both uh, well. Yeah. yeah, when possible. So um, when, there's always an outlier right? You know, the concept of something that you just would have been certain, in fact, it was a bestseller, it did amazing, and, and yet maybe the computer would have said, nah, that shouldn't have been a bestseller. And I'm assuming you guys found some of those. Um, but I'm looking through at the very end, it says, 
um, on page 202, 100 novels our computer thinks you should read. And I'm assuming this is not based on books that just came out like in the last five years. Does it have a bit of a span of time? Um, that list is the top 100 ranked by the computer of books um, from everything in the past 30 years that it felt ha was closest to hitting the target of uh, best-selling DNA in. Right. So I think it's fascinating because I've been looking through here um, that one of the best well-known um, ginormous bestsellers like what was she making like 50 million dollars a year for a couple of years there um, the Twilight series is not in the list uh, no and that is not because Stephanie Meyer cannot write it because she writes YA and there's no YA included in the study that's uh, why you okay that's why you won't find Harry Potter in there or Divergent or those so other things uh. because I'm not we chose that only because the New York Times um, has changed the way they do the lists a few times. And, and while we've been researching this, when Harry Potter was all over the list, I think it had seven of the top slots in adult um, fiction, I believe that that's the moment that they decided to do a separate list for children and young adults, because otherwise the whole list would be given to J.K. Rowling. Um, and <laughs> new book recommendations. We're finding it tough. I, I believe that's when they changed. So, there so is instead no, of the entire children's uh, list was given to J.K. Rowling's. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and so Twilight, I am sure, would, would have done pretty well. Um, but she is not included in the study because she is published to a YA order. Even though adults read her, um, she's directed at that young adult audience. Got it, got it. Okay, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, the... So the Twilight series was first introduced to me. I ignored it completely. And it was only when the fourth book had been published and I was at the gym where my kids were doing competitive gymnastics and I, you know, standing around for four hours, what do you do, right? And I look over and one of the dads who's like 48 years old of one of the kids is sitting there reading the fourth book in the Twilight series. And I walked over to him and I'm like, okay. You have got to tell me what is going on with this thing. Like, why are you reading this? You know, it was hilarious. So, yeah, she definitely was outside of the young young adult area. She was all over the place with that series. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, many, many young adult authors are uh, being read by adults. Um, I, think, yeah. I think that's why the, the genre has grown in terms of popularity so much in the past several years, because adults and young people are reading those books. So I've read some reviews saying, why are adults, you know, reading more and more simple books, you know, books named for teenagers, and, you know, are we dumbing down our reading? And I don't think so. I think it's because those books achieve this kind of simplicity and almost archetypal um, moves with choice of character and, and plot moves, and adults are enjoying them as quickly as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if it's an adult book, you're really expected to be almost like a little bit like you feel like there's this obligation that you have to be more, what's the word? It's not realistic. It's more um, plausible. It's almost like, oh, well, these are adults, so therefore now they have to have plausible lives. Whereas if I'm, you know, writing in in young adult to have slightly more extra, higher emotions and a little bit, it's almost like people are capitalizing on the extreme extremes that people go through in their teen years and how our imagination for what the world could offer is broader and larger than an yeah. adult who's becoming more grounded and, you know, uh, realistic or something like that. Yeah, I, I think I can all look back on our kind of teenage years when we thought that all adults were boring and stupid and we were the generation who were you know, anything's possible and we can change the world and we can date vampires and become wizards if we want to. Yeah. So I I think you're right that to do the same thing to a, a 40-year-old or 50-year-old protagonist might be more difficult. Oh, yeah. It happens. There's lots of um, paranormal um, uh, romances um, out there not hitting the New York Times bestseller list all that often, but they're certainly being written and enjoyed by lots of women. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah, I can think of a few. Oh, thank you very, very, very much for joining me on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. I can tell you're a big book lover, which is always great to to talk to those in general, but to talk about the bestseller code with, with someone who both is a reader and a writer is, is fun. Thank you. Brilliant to have you on the show. And um, 
I am really looking forward. I have not been able to read this book cover to cover yet, and I I pretty much am certain I'm going to do it before November 1st. I want to, as you say, and I'm in the middle of review, but I want to like just have this in my head when I go into that. So, um, but for now, let's make sure people know how to get more information. Um, Jody Archer and Matthew L. Jockers are the co-authors of The Bestseller Code. Obviously, you can look it up on Google and you can find it in various places. If you live on the island, I will have a store copy down at the Vashon Bookshop. So swing by your lovely local bookshop and you can flip through it. Especially if you want to, like, you know, you're sitting around going, oh, I want to read a book, but I want to read a book that's going to be really great. Well, come flip through this this copy and browse the lists that are at the back of all the chapters. Um, you also have a website, and I, I want to mention the name of the website because it's not, it doesn't have bestseller code in it. So it's um, archerjockers.com. That's archer with an E-R and jockers. Dot com. So um, that is where people can go to get some information. There's a whole bunch of comments there by lots of people who've done reviews on this book. It's getting a lot of attention, and it should be getting a lot of attention. So, Jody, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you again for having me. All right, that's our show. My name is March Twisdale, and you've been listening to my interview with Jody Archer here on Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guest authors share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. And now I'll leave you with the inspirational and timely song, We Are the Many, created by musical activist Makana. Come here, gather round the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats could fall And until they are purged, we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Our nation was built upon the right Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight They own it free of liability they own, but they are not like you and me. Their influence dictates legality. And until they are stopped, we are not free. We'll occupy the streets. We'll occupy the courts. We'll occupy the offices of you till you do. The bidding of the many, not the few You enforce your monopolies with guns While sacrificing our daughters and sons But certain things belong to everyone your fevery has left the people none So take heed of our notice to redress We have little to lose, we must confess Your empty words to leave us unimpressed A growing number join us in protest We occupy the streets 
We occupy the courts. We occupy the offices of you till you do. The bidding of the many, not the few. You can't divide us into sides And from our gaze you cannot hide Denial serves to amplify And our allegiance you can't buy Our government is not for sale The banks do not deserve a bail We will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of many, not the few We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few We are the many You are the few.